But you may notice that we are in part 27 of this series, and I entitled today's message, The Mother of All Evil. And you'll find out why I say that here in a moment. But something that struck me last night is that as we go through this series on Revelation, everyone seems to have this idea in their mind that there's a timeline that they need to get saved before the return of Christ. And granted, yeah, that's fair. If you make it that far, we seem to forget that there's also an individual timeline that you may not be here to see the return of Christ. And here's kind of what made me think of that as I prepared this lesson. Uh, yesterday, Saturday, uh, there was a friend of the family that had passed away. And so I had the opportunity to spend some private time with the family doing a memorial in their home. And the gentleman that passed away, really nice guy, everybody loved him, was far too young to go. Born 1944, he's only 65 years old. It's very sudden, not expected. What was interesting as well was that the family kept waiting for one of his best friends to notify them that he was going to drive in and be there at the memorial service. They were about the same age, and he hadn't communicated with them, and they thought that was a little bit strange, because he always would get back to them, especially in something this serious. Well, they found out that two days prior, he passed away. So it was two buddies, same age, absolutely shocking. Now, here's, here's what I'm trying to balance as a pastor, which is... Where is the line between when the book of Revelation writes and it says you need to get right with the Lord because you have no idea how much time you have and where you think I'm manipulating you, right? Where do you think I'm trying to use scare tactics? Is the book of Revelation a scare tactic or is the book of Revelation merely a, hey, let's let me give you some inside information and you might need to prepare for this. So which is it? Is the Bible, is God trying to just scare you to doing what it wants you to do? I don't think that that's the case. I think that literally if you knew there was a fire in the building, wouldn't you encourage everyone to leave? And then if they said, why are you trying to scare me? And you kind of go, well, actually it's a fire. Well, I know you already said that. Okay, at some point, it begins to get a little awkward because you really have to tell people the facts that are in front of them, but then you get accused of manipulating them. So as I look at this, I just need you to understand this and we'll move on. You don't know how much time you have. You don't know when Jesus is going to return. Therefore, let us examine our lives. Good enough? All right, great. Let's move forward. Now, there's a quote at the top of your page that I wanted to kind of begin with and and get a uh, kind of an introduction concept from. Notice that it says it here in the NIV. I remember growing up and reading some King James and New King James, and I always had to put a TH on the end of everything. So I memorized this a little different, right? What profit a man if he gained the whole world yet lose his soul? Things like that. Well, on here, the NIV, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What's funny is then I put it in as a quote and just said that was told, that was said by what? Jesus, right? So it was said by Jesus. What's funny is if you put a 
a quotation, not a quotation, but a, but a, a scriptural verse after it, people ignore it. You put Jesus' name and you go, oh, he really said that? It's weird. Then they're like, oh, well, yeah, now I can receive it, you know, but if it's just a verse, uh, who knows? And, and we distance ourselves. So that's why I just put Jesus on there. Yeah, Jesus said that. Is it true? Absolutely it's true. Why am I pointing it out here? Let me just give you the fill in the blank in front of you and then I'll explain it. Never underestimate the price of your soul. Never underestimate the price of your soul. Ultimately, the mother of all evil is the choice to put something before God. And the reason why this message today is so um, specific to me is it is probably the one thing, at least the concept I'm throwing out, it's probably the one thing that I maybe wrestle with the most. Um, remember last week I challenged you and I said, what do you spend most of your time thinking about? What captures your attention? What captures your imagination? What are you spending your resources on your time? That is likely what you worship. Well, as I was going through and examining my life, I was thinking, you know, I think about, and I shared this with you, but I think about God a lot. Um, if you want to talk about sheer time spent dwelling on something, I dwell on God more than anything else in all of my life. It's part of my job. It's part of my family, even as I train my kids and I engage with my wife, we pray together. It's in my family. My family is saved. So my extended family, I spend time talking about God with them. It is my favorite thing to talk about. It's in every counseling session that I do. It's in every meeting that I do. We pray during the meeting. So pretty much it's in every aspect of my life. There is really only one thing that I think about more than God. And that is what we're going to talk about this morning. I ask you a question. Do you worship at the altar of me? What do I mean? I mean, the one thing I think about more than God is me. As a matter of fact, it even creeps into all my engagement with God. How about you? Do your prayers tend to sound like this? <clears throat> God, I just want to thank you. For what you have given me. I just want to tell you that the way that you have moved in my life is extraordinary. And I want you to know that, Lord, the things that I'm going to do, I will try to do the way that you want me to do them. So please bless me in what I'm trying to do. Right? There's a lot of I, me, my in there, right? And then you go, no, 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 no. Actually, I'm super depressed. So I say it like this. God... I am not the person that you want me to be. God, I know I have failed you as I consider myself. I wonder to what degree I'm even making you proud at all because I have not walked in the ways that I should. Is there any difference between those prayers? No, they're all dominated by I, me, my, right? I mean, how much are you worshiping at the altar of yourself? Because really, that is the mother of all evil, is the sense of kicking God off the throne, and it's all about you, right? Everything that goes on around the world, it all centers around the egotism. And I'm not even talking about just being arrogant. No, I'm talking about no matter what your life stage is. Like, for example, I hear people say, um, uh, you know, no, I'm not, I, don't, I don't wrestle with that idea of pride. No, actually, I feel I have like self-loathing, so I don't, I don't worry. I don't, 
I don't think about myself much at all. Pause. Quick question. A lot of people say that rich people are the ones that have trouble with money, right? You sure? Actually, the people that I know that worship money the most tend to not have any because that's all they think about. I don't have any money. Oh, if I only had money. Oh, so it doesn't matter whether you're rich or you're poor. You're still dominated by money in the same way. Be careful of mixing humility when it's actually self-loathing. Self-loathing and humility are not the same thing. The fact that you go, I have no confidence in myself. I don't even like myself. I'm depressed all the time. Do you understand that's still all about you? You go, well, I don't wrestle with pride. You sure? Because pride takes on many different forms. We can still be caught up in who we are, even in dwelling on our failures. I'm not worth it. Things like that. You're still saying I. It seems like no matter where you go in life, this altar of me is right in front of you. And you can't seem to get away from it. Remember, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's what? Thinking less about yourself, right? See, when we allow ourselves to be the dominant for everything, everything's about me. It's all about feeding myself, consuming things around me, not a concern for other people, not a concern for the world, not a concern for Christ. If we really follow down the path of hedonism, we end up becoming monsters. I got a little news article, just a little tiny one right here. I cut it out of the paper because it, it literally, I went, no way, right? It's one of those kind of articles. Um, it, kind of an example of when you take, when, when the whole world revolves around you and you take it to an extreme, this is kind of the person you become. Kind of listen to all the nuances of this short story. A Nebraska man who stole a painting of the Virgin Mary to help finance an abortion for a teen he raped has been convicted of first-degree sexual assault and felony theft. Aurelio Sanchez, 39, of Omaha, pleaded no contest to the charges Friday and faces up to 70 years in prison when sentenced in October. It was said that Sanchez fled to Mexico with a 300-year-old painting worth $100,000 and a pregnant teen in March 2007, but an abortion wasn't possible, and the teen returned to Nebraska after giving birth, and the painting was sold in Mexico for three grand. Okay, can you make any worse decisions? Wow. That's why I just had to cut it out. I was like, no way. Really? And you understand that when the whole world is for you to use... You don't care who you destroy, but how much of that nature, not to the degree clearly, but how much of that nature is dwelling within us that we still go through life with a consumption mentality that it's really about feeding me. The picture that we are about to see in revelation is this extravagant, nasty looking picture, really dramatic, but ultimately it's a huge picture of selfishness. And I just wonder how much of that monster dwells in you because I know certainly it dwells in me. Let's take a look at revelation chapter 16, revelation 16, verse 17, page 875. It's the last book in the Bible. 
You can just kind of drop it all the way to the right, back up a little bit, and you should be there. Remember, Revelation only has 22 chapters, so we're cruising towards the end here. Revelation chapter 16, verse 17. We'll finish that one up, read through all of chapter 17. So this is a lot of reading, a lot of study today, but it's really telling one long story. So let's take a look at it together here. Verse 17. Remember, this is where we're pausing in the action. We had just started to go into the war of Armageddon. There's a pause till chapter 19, verse 11. Then the action starts again. So we're in that pause of explanation. John said this, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. And God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon man. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, come and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated by the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away into the spirit, into a desert And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And this title was written on her forehead. Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I'll explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast, which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was now is not and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is the other has yet to come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have but one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called chosen and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the 10 horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked and they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. 
The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. That's a lot. Let's go ahead and pray about it. Heavenly Father, thank you for today that we might walk through your word and sit under your teaching. That Christ, it's not that we just need to know the information. It's that we need to know what you want us to do. Uh, that, Lord, I believe that you wrote this, that we might be changed, that we might be different people, that we would not fall prey to all the same things, but, Lord, that we would be set free, that we would not adhere or give our loyalty to any other than you. That, Lord, that at the altar of me, we would shatter that and put you back in your rightful place of our lives. May we love you more because of what we read. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So where have we come from in this book? Last week we talked about seven angels stepping forward in heaven. Having seven bowls, those are the shallow, wide mouth, saucers, that priests would use for wine, for blood offerings, for incense. Seven angels step up. They have the golden bowls of God. In them are the wrath of God. And one by one, they pour them out onto the earth and terrible things hit. We read that brutal passage last week. Well, now the seventh steps up to pour out his. And when he pours his out, the effects of that will be chapter 17, 18. Then we will begin to see things move forward in 19. All right. So. What do we got? It, John says, then I saw the seventh angel. He poured out his bowl into the air. What does that mean? Before he poured it into the sea or he would pour it over the land or he would do something. Why is he pouring it into the air? We have two options. Either he's pouring it into the atmosphere, saying he's going to cause dramatic climate change to where you're now going to see hailstones that are enormous and all types of disruption in the world. Or it could be a reference to where Satan dwells. You go, where would you get that from? Remember that Satan was called the prince of the power of the air. So is it possible that it's pouring out judgment upon the very abode of Satan? Perhaps. So the seventh angel pours his bowl out into the air and out of the temple, meaning in heaven, came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Whose voice is that? It's God. God is shouting out and saying, this section is done. My wrath on that part is done. I still have to clean up. Still going to do the whole throw Satan into the pit thing. But in general, my attack on the earth and my enemies is coming to a close. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. That's when God steps up, his soundtrack goes. Right? Anybody ever wish they had a soundtrack in life? I wish I did. Because everything in a movie is dramatic because of the soundtrack. You walk into the store and a new song starts, that'd be awesome, right? When you're really angry at your kids, like a foreboding sound starts out of heaven, that would be awesome. And then they're all scared, right? You don't even have to punish them, right? Because they're just like, oh my gosh, the soundtrack is freaking me out. That would be great. Well, anyway, this is God's soundtrack. So sure enough, when he shows up, everything starts going crazy. And there's these peals of thunder and rumblings and lightnings. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth, so tremendous was the quake. Now remember, this is the end of the world. So that means never 
in all of history since the dawn of creation has there ever been an earthquake like this. You got to imagine it's a pretty big earthquake, right? All right. So if we have already had earthquakes now, last night, one of my elders, Jay Evans, fired out some photos to me from an earthquake in Ethiopia where the earth just opened up. And it was this huge fissure right in the ground. And you read about in the Old Testament when the ground opened up and swallowed all these people. And I mean, we've learned about all these amazing earthquakes over in Asia. And we have a lot on record of pretty massive earthquakes. And if you think about the flood, if you read the account of the flood, it sure appears that it's not just about rain. It talks about the floodgates coming underneath. There was a ripping apart. I believe that there was continental shift in all of that. There was mountains moved and everything. It's going to be bigger than all of that. And that one shut down and killed everybody. This is a bigger earthquake than that. Why? Well, because God's wrath is being poured out on the earth. If it goes that bad, isn't it going to pretty much ruin everything here in the world? That's why it's called the end of the world right? Huge earthquake, but it has some rather specific effects. It says the great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. That means cities all over the world decimated because it's worldwide shaking. But when it says the great city split into three parts, what does it mean? This is going to be our big challenge through the day, which is what is the great city? Um, either it's referring to the great city here. You're going to find out that the prostitute is also a city. So are they the same city? Are they not? Okay. You've got three choices unless you're a little bit more, you know, creative. You have three choices as to what this city is. Either it's Babylon redesigned. Everybody realize Babylon's a real city. It's an ancient city. It's in Iraq. All right. Either it's Babylon redesigned and the antichrist is moving through a new resurgence of the babylonian empire or it's rome rome is in john's day i will tell you he absolutely thinks it's rome rome was the epitome of all that was against god and killing all the christians so that's your second choice third choice it's jerusalem you Jerusalem, why would that be? I'll tell you a little bit more later, but right off the bat, Jerusalem has already been called the great city. And not only that, but in Old Testament prophecy, it talks about being split so that it prepares for the millennium, the messianic kingdom of God. Is this splitting into three parts a prep for Jesus's return? Huh? These are all your options in front of you. So which is it? Well, let's keep reading. It may be different than the prostitute. I don't think that the prostitute is Jerusalem. But it may be Jerusalem and the prostitute city. All right. Well, let's take a look at it. It moves on. It says, God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Okay, let's talk about Babylon for a moment. Regardless of what the city is, they keep using the word Babylon. Why? Why is Babylon so significant? Well, let's do a history lesson. Y'all remember how Babylon started? The story's in the Bible. It was one of the original ancient cities launched by a guy named Nimrod. You should have known right away, right? No good city ever comes from a guy named Nimrod. Now, 
This city was started to, in order to build a huge tower. Everybody familiar with that? This large ziggurat or pyramid was to reach into the heavens in an effort of all mankind to show how cool they are. Here's how amazing we are. Here's what we can do with our engineering skills. If we're together, there's nothing we can't do. Let's build something so we can make an altar of me. That's really what it was all about. That huge tower irritated God. So he then sent his angels down and did what? Confused the languages and the people were scattered over the earth. So it was known as the Tower of Babel. That exact location turned into the Babylonian Empire. Now, we have archaeological evidence of settlements 3,000 years before Jesus. I mean, we're going back 5,000 years. This is one of the most ancient cities of the world. As a matter of fact, one of the most famous kings ran the city of Babylon. Anybody ever heard of Hammurabi? Raise your hand. Hammurabi. We have one of the oldest tablets we have as an etching of a code of Hammurabi. It was a legal code that was written way, way back about different rules they had for their civilization. Well, that ancient artifact was Hammurabi. He ran Babylon. All right. Well, then it was a big deal for a while. Then it fell out of favor. It kind of went down a little bit and it got a resurgence in 600 BC through a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. Everybody remember the whole Daniel story? There you go. That's when it got back popular again. So why Babylon? Babylon was known as the city of indulgence. Babylon was always known as the city of excess. Now we think of Las Vegas in America as, hey, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And we play all these little games about, hey, that's the, the city of indulgence. Okay, that is nothing compared to Babylon. Babylon is everything to the extreme. It was lavish. It was indulgent. It was massively rich. It was wealthy. It was beautiful. It had one of the seven wonders of the world there. It was just incredible. And everybody in the world went, man, if I could only live in Babylon, that's what it's all about. It's all about you could go in and get anything you want. You can consume anything. You can be as wealthy and gnarly as you want to be. Right. So ever after that became a nickname for anybody that was all about themselves and against God. That's where this Babylon thing comes from. So. It's used as an example. It says, God remembered Babylon the Great. Anybody have a problem with God remembering stuff? That always bugged me, right? It's kind of, and then God remembered Job. You're like, did God forget Job at some point? Did God have, oh, that's right. That's so weird. I have a Babylon city. That's so odd, right? Does God forget his car keys, right? Or he's like, what? I, Michael, where are they, right? You know, and then Michael has to go get him. All right. The idea that, no, 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 no. Whenever you hear the phrase, remember, I want you to put in this phrase, turned his attention to. That's all it means. And then God turned all of his attention toward something. That's what it means. Remember. So God remembered Babylon the Great, focused all his attention, and he gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath, just like he predicted in Revelation 14.10. And every island, speaking of the earthquake, Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. Massive upheaval, verse 21. 
From the sky, huge hailstones of about 100 pounds each fell upon men. Anybody ever been in a hailstorm? Hailstorms are pretty neat. I think they're pretty fun. As long as they're little tiny pellets that are going ding, 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 ding on your head. Right? And when you're inside, it's even more cool. Right? There was a huge hailstorm in Folsom a couple years ago, and I filmed it. It looked like there was snow everywhere. It was really, really neat. But when they're 100 pounds each, you need to bring in the animals. Right? Okay, I don't care where you're at. This is the seventh plague of Egypt. They had hailstones that literally devastated crops, devastated people, devastated animals. Now we have this. How do you even get a hundred pound hailstone? That doesn't even make sense. In our current world, that just doesn't happen. You cannot build up that much condensation without it falling. So this is a miraculous, messed up climate. God, angel, wrap the thing, throw it down kind of attack, right? Hundred pound hailstones. Imagine those things hitting cars. And I mean, it's just insane. Then it says, and they curse God on account of the plague of hail. Because the plague was so terrible. You know, it's interesting because God immediately gets blamed. Is God to blame? Yep, this time. But why is he doing it? Because they messed up. We blame God all the time for things that we messed up. Right? I was thinking of this analogy last night. That I know a lot of people that are thinking, man, so sure enough, I drink and drive one time, then I'm busted. What does God have against me? You're like, what? What'd you just say? Well, it's not like everybody else isn't drinking and driving, yet I'm the one busted. Clearly, God is against me. No, clearly you're a moron. (laughs) Right? I understand. We make poor decisions. I get it. It's not like I'm not making stupid decisions too, but why are we blaming God for it? Why don't we just stop and go, hey, this could likely be a consequence for me not being intelligent. Right? Right? But God immediately gets blamed. Everything's God's fault, right? This time he's going, yeah, but the only reason I'm throwing these enormous chunks of ice on you is because you're against me. You're doing it all wrong. So of course I'm going to discipline. Of course I'm going to bring my wrath. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come and I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute. Now, this is the first time we've been notified that she's a prostitute. Remember, this is going to be a city. The prostitute concept is an Old Testament concept. It always meant someone being unfaithful to something. That was what the whole analogy was about. So, for example, if you were a believer and you were idolatrous and followed other gods, God said you've been what? Adulterous to me. You've been unfaithful to me. You cheated on me. You go, God, why are you using such personal terms? Why do you got to get all extreme? Why can't you just say, I wasn't worshiping you rightly? He said, because don't you understand that our relationship is fused together like a marriage? Don't you understand that my heart is yours and your heart is mine? And no, I don't just put up with you cheating on me. I have boundaries. As a matter of fact, does anybody remember the story of Hosea? Go back in the Old Testament and read the book of Hosea. Talk about a weird calling. What his wife was a prostitute and he just had to keep taking her back because God goes, that's how I feel. With you guys, what all you do is cheat on me. And all I do is take you back every time. Hosea, I want you to know how that feels. I want you to express it to the people. So all throughout the Old Testament, the idea of 
choosing something other than God is known as adultery. Well, by trade, a prostitute is committing sex outside of marriage. That's her job. So clearly he uses that as an analogy here of a pagan city. Now, what, what goes on? He said, the prostitute, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters, which he'll explain in a moment. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. In other words, all the kings of the world went, man, I want to be more like Babylon. And I will trade whatever it takes. I will do whatever it takes to be as big, as powerful, as indulgent, and as amazing as she is. So really all the kings kind of learned from her. If you think about, let me, let me give you an example. Uh, in the Muslim world, one of the things that is so frustrating uh, for them about America is our influence on the rest of the world, our westernization, our idea. And everyone goes, oh, they're against freedom. Okay, well, maybe there's some of power hungry guys that are against that. But a lot of their frustration is the temptation of their children is they're going through and they believe and are adhering to a certain system of rules. And they believe that America is going around screwing everything up because now everybody, all their kids are growing up. Hey, I want to be like Hollywood. I want to be like this. I want to be like that. And they're worried about the influence that we have over the whole world. In their minds, we're the great prostitute. We're the ones causing all the carnage. We're the ones that are constantly selling sex all over the world. Are they right? Man, we put out a lot more than they do, right? So uh, you got to understand the concepts here and the frustrations. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit. That means in like a dreamlike state into a desert. Why a desert? So everything can be cleared out and we can focus on one thing. There I saw a woman, Babylon, sitting on a scarlet beast. All right. What's what color is scarlet? Red. What color was the dragon that was Satan? Red. So we have very similar coloring. What was the color of the beast that came up out of the sea? Scarlet. Same beast. This is the Antichrist. All right. Now we say, is it a man or is it an empire? That's going to be a big battle. We're about to fight here in a moment. The beast, because it keeps moving on us. We keep going, no, it's the guy. No, wait, it's the empire. No, it's the guy. It might likely be a combo. But there was a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names. What is blasphemy? Attributing something of God to something else. It's the idea, and immediately John would have thought of Rome. Why? Because all the Caesars called themselves God, Lord. They took all God's names and they said, you need to worship me. Well, that's unacceptable. You even look at all the temples all over Rome to these other gods. This is blasphemy. So this beast, whatever this person or empire is, it's covered with names that are specific to God. People are stealing God's glory. So that's on this beast, right? And it had seven heads and ten horns, which it will explain. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. How do you think she got all that cash? Off other people. That's the idea. 
The purple and scarlet are rich, expensive clothing. So she's really, really wealthy off other people. The harm of other people got her wealthy. That's the problem with her wealth. She held a golden cup in her hand. All right. So you got a picture of chalice, right? She's holding that in her hand, which usually you have wine in. And it, but this one was filled with what? Abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. I don't know what that looks like, but it's got to be nasty, right? And by the way, I don't really like the word abominable. That's a weird word because it's only the abominable snowman. It, was everyone not thinking snowman when I said that? Totally, I know. Um, which is why I use the word Yeti. Anybody familiar with Yeti? All right. Okay, good. I can't say abominable very often. All right. So it was filled with things God hates. That's what abomination means. It was filled with things God hates. You're going to find out what was in the cup in a second. And this title was written on her forehead. Now, this is a mystery, but this title is on her forehead. Why is everybody getting titles on their forehead? Remember, the mark of God was on their foreheads. The mark of the beast, 666, was on her forehead. But this is different. This is actually a plate that was worn by a chain around your head, and you'd wear a plate. It's called a frontlet. It's basically a license plate for your head, right? Why is there a license plate on her forehead? Because in the ancient Roman system, when you would go into a brothel, you needed to be able to pick out the girl that you wanted, and her name was written on a little license plate on her forehead. So you could pick out which one you wanted. That's what the naming is. So this is a prostitution thing. So what's on her forehead? Well, it says it's a mystery. In other words, you need to help try to figure this one out. But here's what's written on her forehead. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the mother of the abominations of the earth, the mother of all that is evil. She is egotism. She is indulgence. She is all that is against God. She, do you see what I mean? In other words, this massive concept that is represented by this city of all that is selfish and all that is about me, 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 that is what she represents. And everybody seems to be buying into the me, me, me and not into God. That's really what we are looking at here. And I saw that the woman was drunk. So she's hammered, right, on whatever's in her cup. She's been drinking stuff in her cup. What is in her cup? It says she was drunk with the what? The blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. You go, what? So her chalice is filled with blood of the martyrs. Now, Rome, as I told you in John's day, was the epitome of kill the Christians place. So this cup is full and she's drinking it and laughing and getting rocked off this whole idea of killing and dominating and stopping Christ. Is there a high that comes with power, with torture, with vicious activity, with domination? Yes, there is. That's why people do it. They get completely stoned off this idea of, I'm great, I'm mighty, how dare you stand up against me? I'm the greatest thing in the world, me, 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 right? Ah, that's what she's drunk off of, and that is why she will be judged. When I saw her, John said, I was greatly astonished. I mean, he was blown away, thinking, man, this is the nastiest thing I've ever seen. I don't get it. The angel said to me, why are you astonished? 
I'll explain it to you. The mystery of the woman, the beast that she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss. We are going to hear that three times. We've already heard that before. And this is the concept. Remember, the beast that rose up out of the sea had these multiple heads. One head was slain with a sword, but then revived again. That's what they're talking about. Now, in John's day, there was a great... uh, myth that Nero, one of the nastiest emperors of all time, he had already died. He committed suicide. They believed he was going to raise back from the dead and come in and reign in Rome again. So they kept waiting for someone to resurrect. So John would have automatically thought this is referring to Nero. Is it not likely? I believe it's referring to the antichrist of the future. Now, remember the argument is, does this beast stand for an empire that you look and you go, wait a second, this empire should have been gone. There's no way. But now it's resurrected. How in the world did it come back to power? Is that what it means? Or does it mean a guy who's a world leader, there's an assassination attempt, looks like he's going to die, but he bounces back. Either way, evil is rebounding and coming back up and the whole world is astonished. It says, The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss, meaning demonically, and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, all secular men and women, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, that's the list God has of all believers, will be astonished when they see the beast because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. In other words, the angel goes, this is going to be a tough one. The seven heads of the beast, remember, empire or guy, are seven hills on which the woman sits. Unfortunately, that doesn't help clarify too much. Here's why. In John's day, this is clearly Rome. Rome was known by all its poets as the city on seven hills. All right? That was very obvious. Everyone goes, oh, it's obviously Rome. Jerusalem has seven hills. So that adds in Jerusalem. She's already been called Babylon the Great. So now we're still back to the three options. Which one is it referring to? All right. It's seven hills on which the woman sits, but they are also what? Seven kings. That's a double meaning prophecy. I can't stand that. I have a hard enough time with one. Don't do two meanings. So now it's seven kings. Now every commentator in history is counting out who the leaders are. Oh, it's seven emperors and it's these guys. And the guy goes, no, you miscounted. It's these guys. And then everybody argues about it. We don't know is really the point. There are seven kings. Five have fallen. That means before John's day, five of these major leaders or empires have fallen. So you can go back through and count and go the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember all the ones in Daniel, the Roman Empire. And you start counting them. You go five have fallen. Then what? One is Rome was up in John's day. If it's a kingdom, if it's a king, Domitian was leading during John's day. The other has not yet come. That means it's a future leader or a future empire. But when he does, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. What does that mean? 
Most likely it means that when he goes away and revives, it's almost like an eighth king has come up. It's not the eighth, he's still the seventh, but everyone counted him out. Let me give you an example on what this would look like as an empire. How much are we currently, as a superpower of America, nervous about Rome attacking us? I mean, isn't it kind of silly? Rome is a place that you go and throw little things in a fountain, right? Isn't that what it is? I mean, I just came back from there. There's really nothing going on. It's a beautiful location and it's a great vacation spot, but it's not an empire. If the empire of Rome became a superpower, would you be shocked? Yeah, that's kind of what the point is. The whole world would go, no way. We counted those guys out. They were nobody. All right, if it's an empire, that's what it looks like. If it's an individual, then it would look like a dominating world leader that steps up and nothing seems to be able to shut this guy down. Now we move on. It says, the ten horns on the beast, remember, which is an empire or a guy, we're going to call it empire right now. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. So ten future leaders but who for one hour, that just means a short amount of time, will receive authority as kings of the earth along with the beast. So Antichrist, ten other guys, they form a coalition, begin to lead the world. They have but one purpose, that they will give their power and authority to the beast. They keep him popular. They will make war against the lamb in the battle of Armageddon. They'll fight against Jesus by getting their crew together. But the lamb, Jesus Christ, will overcome them by winning the battle because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. That is Christians, martyrs, believers. Then the angel said to me, by the way, the waters you saw where the prostitute is sitting on, those are people's multitudes, nations, and languages. In other words, it's the whole world. She is so dominant that she runs the whole world at this point. The beast, meaning the Antichrist, and the ten horns, ten future leaders you saw will hate the prostitute. You're like, what? I thought they were together. They were for a time. What does the prostitute represent? A city with a huge altar of me, 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 me. Remember hedonism. The Antichrist rode on those coattails. Hey, everything's going great. Aren't we all part of one team? Look at us all doing it together. I can make you rich. I can make you wealthy. You just got to stick with me. I can solve all the world's problems. But once he gets to the top, he is not going to allow everyone to just be thinking about themselves, is he? No, now it's all about world domination. He then attacks and destroys the whole city of me, 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 me. Because now he said, no, it's not about you anymore. Now it's about me. And he devastates and destroys egotism, this city of autonomous hedonism. It says they will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin, leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and they will burn her with fire. They will just decimate the city that got them there. Because now it's about them leading the world. Why is all this happening? Verse 17. God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose. God organized it. Has God ever in the Old Testament used a pagan nation to judge another pagan nation? Yeah, he does it all the time. That's what you just saw. Now you have Babylon needing to be destroyed. So he used the Antichrist. 
destroy Babylon, then destroy beast. And you just knocked out both. That's what's going to occur. As a matter of fact, the destruction of Babylon is everything we're studying next week in chapter 18. It says, God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. All right. So what do we do with this? We know it's going to be superpowers and fighting and knocking this person down. Okay. How do we make it personal? The whole reason that the prostitute is receiving the wrath of God is because it was all about selfishness. I ask you this. What have you sold your soul for? Are you hyper dominated by yourself? Is everything about you? You're defensive about everything. You're frustrated by everybody because it's not the way you want it. Is that the problem? How much are you worshiping the God of me? That's really what this is about. As nasty and embarrassing as this whole picture is that you just saw, that may be you in the mirror, right? You look at that person and you go, wait a second, what have I become? Where all my thoughts, all my interests, everything is about me. And God is playing second chair to you. You call all the shots, you make all the decisions, and you ask God to rubber stamp what you want. It's just as ugly in your life and in my life as it is in the pages of Scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us engage with you to sit at your feet and learn. I pray right now, Lord, that somehow, some way, we would demolish the altar of me and begin to worship the true and rightful God. That, Lord, as much as you are going to bring judgment upon selfishness in the future, so too are you disturbed by it in the present. And I just ask, Lord, that we would not resist you in the process of making us less selfish, that we would work with you, that we would be soft and moldable under your hands, that, Lord, that we would be the people that are pleasing to you. Oh, God, change us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.